Thank you, Jane, for sharing uh, your story with us. Uh, thank you for coming. For all of you who are here today, welcome uh, in the name of the Lord. Uh, thank you for praying for those of us who went to Ecuador. Uh, there were about 10 of us in here uh, who went down, uh, went down to Ecuador and, and came back and had a really, really uh, an amazing time out there just seeing the things that uh, God is doing, getting to visit with the new villages and, and make new relationships. And um, yeah, we just came back uh, really encouraged with the work that God is doing. So thank you for fasting and praying. Those who are in the Dominican Republic are coming back on Thursday, Lord willing, so continue to keep them in your prayers. Uh, they're doing well. Uh, we've been co I've been communicating with them on almost every day on a daily basis, and um, yeah, they're doing well, and uh, they do ask for your continued prayers, so if you do that, that would be awesome. Uh, this is my, my last message before I go on a seven-week uh, sabbatical, and so um, I'm excited for that. I'm sad to be away from y'all. Um, I, I, I yeah, really am. Um, it's going to be hard to be away, but at the same time, you know, it's something that, that uh, I need to do in order that we could stay in the game for a long time uh, together with y'all. So if you would keep uh, Olivia and myself and our kids in prayer, that would be awesome. We'll be spending most of our time in, in the West Coast and uh, California and Vancouver, Canada, and uh, just kind of doing some things like that. So uh, pray for us. And, and in the meantime, for those of you who will be staying, uh, please continue to come and worship here and really own this, right? Own this. It's not about, you know, obviously it's not about me and it's not about um, a person or a pastor or somebody who sits up here, but it's, it's us. It's the church and it's about Jesus. And so um, in my absence, uh, even more so than in my presence, I would ask that you'd really be the church and, and be faithful and lean on the Lord and lean on each other and um, yeah, be awesome for the kingdom of God. Amen. Um, also, um, during my time away, we will be sending uh, Keshla off to the nations. Uh, because this is being recorded, I'm not going to be too specific about it. Uh, but please do uh, send her in the best way that you can. Yeah. She's one of us, and she's going to change the world, and she already is. Uh, we have seen the work of God in her life in such powerful ways. And if you haven't heard her story of how she came to our church and how the Lord's been working in her and her journey uh, she shared again in Ecuador at a house church gathering in Lago Agrio, and it was powerful, even in Spanish. I could only understand a few things, but knowing her story, uh, it was just mind-blowing to see the work of God, and people in our, in our uh, those of us who were down there were just testifying. We'd, we'd seen her when she was first there as a translator, and I hope I'm not saying too much, but just crying her way through, feeling like she wasn't able to communicate adequately what, was being, what we were preaching and what we were sharing uh, but then she comes up at a house church in Lago Agrio four years later, and she's preaching the Word of God. Uh, no notes or anything. Powerful. And on the way home, she got upgraded to first class, and we said, you deserved it. Right? God knows. Uh, yeah, praise God. He honors those who honor Him. Amen? Many years ago in the uh, 18th century in England, there was a little boy named Robert Robinson. Okay. Is that cruel of his parents to give him that name? I don't know. Robert Robinson was his name. <clears throat> uh, he was young when his father passed away, and in uh, 18th century, 1700s England, uh, they didn't have like a welfare system. They didn't have uh, insurance for uh, death benefits and things like that, and so uh, little young Robert was forced to work, right? like many kids in the streets of, of England would do. He would he'd work, and he fended for himself, and uh, he met and hung out with a bunch of unsavory other little kids and uh, some shady friends got into some shady business. No, no, no doing of his own. It's just that's kind of the way it happened. Thug life chose him. He didn't choose a thug life. And so here's little Robert Robinson, and he's living that way and, you know, just messing around, causing a lot of trouble, hurting people, hurting other, uh, hurting himself, alcohol, all this stuff. And this one, one weird night, I, you know, it's weird. I don't exactly know how this happened, but his cronies and his group of, like, 10-year-old boys decided to get some alcohol, and there was this gypsy on the street, an elderly lady on the streets of, of England, and they decided to get her drunk. I don't know what, I guess it's fun for people like that, but they got her all drunk, and she was like in this like crazy tipsy state, and she pointed at young Robert, uh, and she said, you are the only one of this group who will live to see your children and your grandchildren. That's a weird thing to say, right? But that sunk into his heart. And he said, if I'm going to live to see my children and my grandchildren, then I can't live this way. I need to change the way that I live. 
And so he decided, I'm going to go hear a preacher. And there was a preacher in uh, 1700s England, a man named George Whitfield, powerful preacher. And he decided to go and hear him, but he didn't want his friends to think he was uncool. And so he said to his buddies, he said, hey, guys, let's go and let's start harassing this preacher. <laughs> let's go start, like, making fun of him. But he really wanted to hear what he had to say. And through that message, he, uh, the, it was like from Matthew 3 where Jesus says to the Pharisees, who told you to flee from the coming, of, coming wrath, you brood of vipers? And he heard that message, and just the, the fear of God and the dread of God and the terror of God fell upon this young boy, and it gripped his heart. And for like three whole years, he just felt this sense of the fear and the terror of God over his life. Fast forward after about three years, he was now at the age of uh, 20 or 20. He gave his life to Christ, and then two years later, uh, he became a prolific songwriter. And so he wrote this song, we're not going to sing it today, but he wrote this song, it says, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. At the end of that hymn, the last stanza talks about his heart and his struggle and how prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. I think as he writes that, he's talking about the universal condition of the human heart for those of us who follow Christ, the ups and downs, the, the spiritual roller coaster, if you will, that I love God today, and then, oh, I'm not so sure I want to even follow him. I want to go all in for him today, and I'm not sure if he's really real anymore. These ups and downs, you have these ups and downs where you make a commitment to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And then come Monday, oops, I'm turning back, I'm turning back. It's kind of a struggle sometimes, isn't it? Robert Robinson understands that the struggle is real, and so do you and I, and so do the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. We've come to this point at the end, we're at the end of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. We've seen some amazing things happen. Couple, past couple weeks, we've gotten to this place where the, the word of God was finally brought forth after all these years, and this revival broke out. People began to weep over the word of God. They renewed the covenant. They said, God, we're going to follow you, whatever it takes, we're going to follow you. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem was heard from all around the city. There was a great revival, and the witness of the city on a hill, the light unto the nations, was beginning to go forth. And so we come to Nehemiah 13, we come to the very last chapter, to the happy, happy conclusion of the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to realize that it's actually not so happy. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter um, because I want to. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to read the entire chapter because uh, it's important that we do. And talking with our presider, Eugene, after our alpha service, he said, yeah, I think it's important that we read the whole thing. Okay, so we're going to read it. Um, it's exciting. Right? So walk with us here. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. See, the Ammonites and the Moabites came from Ammon and Moab, who were the children of Lot, born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And the children of that relationship were called Ammon and Moab. And these are the people from which the Ammonites and Moabites come. Verse 2, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Okay, this is just some history. Uh, in Israel. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, uh, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. So he's in charge of all the storage places in the temple. Uh, he was closely associated with Tobiah. You might remember the name Tobiah the Ammonite. He showed up multiple times in Nehemiah. He was a bad guy, one of the guys who tried to thwart the rebuilding process uh, from the foreign nations. Uh, this is Tobiah. He was, Eliashib the priest was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room in the temple formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, 
singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Okay, so what's going on here is that the people of God, when they would give their tithes, uh, they didn't have money. They didn't have like dollar bills. They didn't have Benjamin, so they would bring grain. There was a village we went to in Ecuador called Itaya, and they didn't have much money. And so when they would come to church to bring offering, they wouldn't bring coins or you know, dollar bills. They would bring corn or yucca or uh, chickens as their offering, and they would put that in the church plate. So this is what the Israelites were doing also. And so the room that Tobiah had was the room used to store those tithes. Verse 6, but while all this was going on, I wasn't in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. So 12 years after he came from, uh, from Persia, from Babylon to Jerusalem, 12 years later, he goes back. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites hadn't been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Come back into the house of God, he tells them. Verse 12, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what, my, what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what's this wicked thing you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things? So that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city, now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open till the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why are you spending the night by the wall? You do this again, I'll lay hands on you. Right? That's a nice way of saying, I'll kick your butt. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language uh, of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. <laughs> This guy's crazy, right? I made them take an oath. I made them take it. He makes them take an oath. Who does that? In God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Wasn't it because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now? that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. He was the leader of the bad guys, the satanic trifecta who was trying to derail the building plan. This is who he was. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. 
Remember me with favor, oh my God. And this is God's word. So this is it, man. This is how it ends. Chapter 1 begins in about the 20th year, the reign of Artaxerxes. It ends chapter 13 in the 32nd. So, uh, well, 12 years. For 12 years, the rebuilding project starts, rebuilds the city walls. He rebuilds the people's hearts, and then he repopulates the city of Jerusalem, and he calls them to consecrate themselves by making a covenant before God. And so all that happens over a period of 12 years. Nehemiah looks at the rebuilding. He says, my work is done. I'm going to go back to my job as the cupbearer in the White House of Persia. And so he goes back to be the second man in charge in Persia, and he's hanging out there. And then sometime later, doesn't really say how long. Some people say it was at retiring age. Some people say it was 15 years, 20 years. Nobody really knows. But sometime later, Artaxerxes says, hey, uh, Nehemiah, you can go back to Jerusalem now. And so he goes back because while you can get the man out of Jerusalem, you cannot get the Jerusalem out of the man. And so he's feeling Jerusalem in his heart. And so he goes back to the people of God. The last thing he remembered is that, man, the sound of joy, the bass was pumping and the people were moving to the beat of the mercy of God and there was life in that city in Jesus, well, in the precursor to Jesus in his name. And so they were excited and there was joy because they were following the ways of God and that's what Nehemiah remembers. And so he goes back off of his uh, time away and he comes back and what does he see? He sees the people have fallen back into sin. The threefold commitment to honor the Sabbath, to give their tithes, and to, and to uh, not marry foreign women, they failed in those things. And he sees there's anarchy, and there's spiritual chaos, and there's spiritual decay. And his heart is broken over it. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So how do we say, God, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it? Seal it for your courts above. How do we do this? There's a couple things, and there's a lot of things, but there's a couple things in particular that I want to point out here. Here's the first thing that we have to understand. You have to know that big problems start with small compromises. You have to know that big problems start with small compromises. You understand this in the school of life, don't you? Right? You don't fix that $50 uh, or do that $50 oil change, it'll lead to $5,000 engine damage. You got to deal with it early. You got to nip it in the bud. A few weeks ago, I talked about how uh, on, a, on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic, uh, there were three of our high school guys who were clowning in the back when the rest of us were in the sanctuary and we we're, you know, doing like spiritual stuff. They were doing like splash down water park stuff. And uh, it just says, the Lord, this is the grace of God. You know, God takes those people and he transforms them. And so two of these three brothers were my roommates on our recent mission trip in Ecuador. Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And, and so he did. And so they were my roommates, one of them on that side, one of them in the middle, and me on the right side. We'd come back from a long day of ministry. We'd gone to a lot of different places. Um, we were in, I mean, it was wild. We were, uh, some days, uh, some days, some 24-hour days, we were in the bus probably more than we slept or than we did ministry. Is that right? Something wild like that. There was one place, it was three hours to get there and craziness, and we'd be there for like an hour, two hours doing stuff, and then we'd get back on the bus, go to the next village. But it was a long day of ministry. We were tired, and uh, one of the, 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 the brother who was in the bed in the middle uh, was doing something in the bathroom, probably making it stink, and so he came out, and uh, over his bed, he said, ooh, there's a mosquito. <laughs> and then he said, uh, but I'm too tired to do anything about it. <laughs> Here's a funny thing, right? <laughs> For the entire trip, we did everything we could to protect against mosquitoes because we know that these tiny little suckers carry the malaria disease. And so we would take malaria pills, doxycycline from a day before we get into the jungle area. Every day, religiously, we'd take it a day after we leave that area because we know the influence of a tiny little thing like a mosquito. We had so many different kinds of bug repellent. Everybody had brought their bug repellent. Some had deep woods off that is awesome for when you go into the woods. Others had Burt's Bees, eucalyptus oil that you spread all over yourself and is non-greasy. And, and other people, uh, one of our veterinarians had this spray. It's safe for both pets and people and it's high-level protection. We had all kinds of different mosquito repellents. We were spraying them on everywhere. Some of our people wore long, they wore jeans uh, the entire time or long shirts because they didn't want to get bit. 
And even so, some people are like, man, I got bit through my clothing. It's crazy. One of our guys was like tattooed all down his legs, and he's like scratching it everywhere. The one question he asked more than any other question was, does anyone have the itch cream? Because we know, we know how dangerous and devastating one tiny little mosquito could be and the effects that it could have to ruin somebody's day. And yet when that mosquito was buzzing around in the middle of the room, he said, I'm too tired to do anything about that mosquito. And so it was the scene that Nehemiah found when he came back to Jerusalem. Understanding, understanding that this man named Tobiah had constantly been giving a hard time to the people of God, Nehemiah comes back and he sees that in the middle of the temple, in one of the storerooms, Tobiah was firmly entrenched. And that simple mistake to put Tobiah in the temple led to the ruin of the spiritual lives of the rest of the people of God. Oh, my gosh, you're being so dramatic. So here's what happened. We read it, but let me explain it. There's a priest named Eliashib. It said he was friends with Tobiah, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was wreaking havoc on the people of God. And he knew what the Word of God said, that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter into the temple. But this is what he said. I know the Bible says that, but he's my friend. Besides, it can't be that bad to have him in just one of the rooms. This is the language of compromise. I know the Bible says this, but dot, dot, dot. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. I can handle it. Everyone else is doing it. Nobody will see it. Nobody will know. But this is the language of compromise. Compromise is when God says, I want all of you 100%. When we say, God, I'll give you 90% and leave 10% to my fleshly desire. I'll leave 10% of a foothold for the enemy to get in and to infiltrate into my heart. And when you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. And if you give the devil a room, he will take a nation with him. So what happened? In the temple, it's just one room. It's just one room. I know the Word of God says don't do it, but it's just one room. And so he sets Tobiah up in the room that happened to be the room where all the temple articles were stored, where all the tithes were stored. And so there was no room anymore for people to give their tithes. Where is it going to go? And so people stopped giving their tithe to God. As a result, the priests and the Levites stopped getting paid. As a result, they had to leave the temple and go back to their fields to work in order to provide for themselves and for their families. As a result, nobody was teaching the people of God spiritually. As a result, the nation collapses into spiritual decay and apostasy and into adultery because of one simple choice. My friends, we've got to understand that big blowouts in your tire start with tiny punctures in your wheel. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And the language of compromise is, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I, I, I know, I'm not going to sleep around with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but that one night, she's just really tired. She's just going to sleep on my sofa. And you give the devil a, an inch. Yeah, you know what? Um, I know I said I'm going to give my tithe, but um, this month I'm going to be out of town on the day that I usually give my tithe, so I'll just, I'll just keep it, and I'll keep that extra few hundred dollars just for this month. Yeah. You know what, I, I, I know I said that I'm going to read the Bible every day, but uh, you know what, we got, we got home really late last night, and I'm really tired, and, and so besides, Sunday's coming real quick, so I'll just, kind of, uh, I'll just kind of let it go. This is the language of compromise, where we give an inch, and the devil will take a mile, because this is the nature of of compromise and sin, it always, always, always takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you are willing to pay. That's the nature of compromise and sin within our lives. He's the priest, the spiritual leader of a nation. I know the Word of God says this, but it's all good. 
It's all good. It's not that big a deal. And so he lets him set up shop here, and it causes a nation to fall. You understand this, right? You think about King David, who commits adultery with Bathsheba. Started with a look. That's all it took. You think in that moment he looked at Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof of the house. Do you think he said, you know what, I want my children to fall into the same sin that I do. I want my son to marry 700 wives and have 300 concubines and to lead our nation, the people of God, to a divided kingdom. He didn't say that. It started with a look. That's all it took. That's all it took to lead an entire nation and their children away. It starts small. It starts small. It's just one mosquito. It's just one room. It's just one inch. And then enemy takes that and he enters in and he infiltrates. So what are we supposed to do? We've got to understand, y'all. It starts small. Whatever it is, you've got to nip it in the bud. That means, hey, I need to stop following these Instagram models. That means I've got I to gotta unsubscribe from Netflix. That means, hey, I, I know I shouldn't go shopping all the time, but I'm still getting these magazines and these catalogs and these emails with these 50% off coupons. You need to stop that. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Because big problems start with small compromises. It's the first thing we have to understand. The second thing that we have to understand then is that you have to deal ruthlessly with whatever destroys the work of God in your life. Okay, we need to deal ruthlessly. Okay, thankfully for my roommate, um, I was not going to invite that mosquito in and say, hey, you can hang out with us as long as you don't bite me, sting me. So I took my shirt and I hid it, and then we realized it wasn't really a mosquito at all. So, <laughs> but... We need to deal ruthlessly with what we think could potentially be mosquitoes. Okay? Uh, one of the things that Elijah, uh, he's, my, um, he's our six-year-old son. One of the things Elijah loves to do is he loves Power Rangers. And so he's gotten these like, new Power Ranger swords, right? these swords that you push a button and the, the, the sword comes out, the blade comes out, and makes all these noises, and it lights up, and you can spin the dial, and you can take it off, and it becomes a ninja star and things like that. And he's like super cool. He loves them. So he says, Daddy... Uh, will you play with me? Can you play with me? I said, sure, Elijah, let's play. I don't always say sure. I'm, sometimes I'm bad. This is Father's Day. This is the dad guilt in me. He says, Daddy, will you play with me? Sometimes I say, Elijah, I'm busy. I'm working. And he said, Daddy, you never play with me. I said, don't say that. I'm not, I'm, I don't not never play with you. Like, sometimes I don't play with you. So sometimes when I play with him, he's like, yeah, let's play Power Rangers. Like, yeah, Elijah, let's do it. So I grab the sword. He's like, no, Daddy, that's my sword. So I grab the other sword. He's like, no, Daddy, that's my sword. It's like, Elijah, Where's my sword? And then he goes like into the, like, this like, box where he put his toys he don't like playing with anymore. And he busts out this like, folded in half plastic ninja sword. He's like, Daddy, here's your sword. It's like, Elijah, uh, I want one of your swords. Why don't you use this one? He said, no, you have to be the ninja. We need a ninja to play. So I'm like playing with this like, flimsy sword that doesn't do anything. So he's like, all right, we have to have a mission. We have to have a mission. I said, all right, power, all right, rangers, we're on a mission. The bad guys have penetrated into our base. And he's like, yeah, they're here, and we have to get them. And I say, and their names are Mommy and Manny and Elise, and we need to get them before. And then he says, pause, delete. <laughs> so I was like, what? He said, pause, delete. I like, what do you mean? It's like, no, Daddy, I don't want to play that right. I don't want Mommy and Manny and Elise to be the bad guys. So we have to pause and we have to delete all of that stuff. I said, what are you talking about? Who does that? Like, who, who says pause, delete? Did any of your kids say that? Pause, delete. I was like, what are you talking about? He didn't like the way the game was going, the way the story was going. He said, pause, delete. Let's rewind and go back and let's change the story. And this is what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, as you look at the way your story is going, are you willing to pause and to delete and go back and make the story better than it is right now? Because here's what was happening. The enemy, and this is what happens in our lives, the enemy seeks to destroy whatever God is doing in our lives. Okay. How do you know what God is doing? How did, in, in chapter 10, you remember this if you are here, the people of God make three commitments, three covenantal vows before the Lord. They say, God, we are going to honor the Sabbath. God, we are going to, we're going to give you our tithes, and we're not going to intermarry with people who worship other gods. But it was those very three things that we see come up again that Nehemiah 
is angry about when he returns from Persia to see the people of God. He sees them in spiritual chaos and disorder and disarray, and it's because of the tithe, because of the Sabbath, and because of foreign men and women that they've given their children, given themselves in marriage to. How do you know what God is doing in your life? How do you know what the work of God is in your life? Because if we know this, then we can know what the enemy is attacking. You know the work of God in your life by what God is constantly repeating in your life. You know the work of God by what God is convicting you about. You know the work of God by what you're constantly hearing in your mind. You come to church, you read it in your quiet time, the, the song that you're grooving to. Right? These things are constantly speaking the same thing. You go to house church, and these are the things that your leader or, or someone else is talking about. Right? This is the way you know that God is working. He's trying to get your attention. And these are often the ways that the enemy will attack and try to lead you into compromise in those very areas. So you, you, you come here last Sunday, and you see these people being commissioned to go to the mission field, and you say, you know what? Next year, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go to missions. I want to do something for the kingdom of God in a foreign nation. And you, you pray that because you feel like God has been speaking to that in your heart, and you couldn't go this year because of work, but you're saying, whatever it takes, next year I'm going to go. And then all of a sudden you come back and you see some people have been scarred with mosquito bites, and then you begin to think, yeah, you know what? I'm not really good with mosquitoes, and the enemy begins to put lies into your mind. The enemy wants to destroy the work that God is doing in your heart. You made a commitment a few weeks back to say, I need to get into the Word of God. I need to get into the Word of God. And you make a commitment to do that. And it's that very commitment that gets attacked. You lose your Bible. You can't find it. And so you say, oh, well, I'll just read, uh, I'll just read Harry Potter instead. <laughs> Whatever it is. You made a oh, I feel God is telling me to reach out to that friend, reach out to that coworker, reach out to that person who sits in my, in my math class. I got to reach out to that person in my, in my pre algebra class. God has been putting them on my heart because they've been asking me what I do on the weekends and I've been too shy to tell them. I've been afraid to tell them. And God's putting that person in your heart. And then all of a sudden, your friend says something like, hey, you know what? Uh, that friend is really cool. And if you start talking about Jesus with them, then they're not going to like you anymore. You're going to lose the only friend you've got. And the enemy begins to attack the work of God in your heart. What has God been doing in your life? What's God been speaking to your heart about? Maybe it's about being part of a house church, a community. Maybe it's about being fully committed to Sunday worship. Maybe it's in the area of what you do with your finances. Maybe it's in what you do with your time. Because you see, that will be repeated time and time again in the Old Testament. It's repeated time and time again here in Nehemiah. And so you've got this conviction. The enemy works against that. We need to deal ruthlessly with the things that attack the work of God within our lives. So if you committed to come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night and somebody says, hey, every Wednesday we've got this, this new uh, ping pong league and it meets on Wednesday night. You've got this choice, the work of God, let's go pray, the work of the enemy to distract, let's go play ping pong. What are you going to do? You need to ruthlessly deal with the things that work against the work of God in your life. You have to identify that. You have to see that. Don't just say, oh, ping pong came up. I'm not going to go to prayer meeting. What are we, uh, what are we sensing, seeing, knowing the work of God in our lives to be? Here, the first thing it says here is that they were not giving their tithes anymore. See, what you do, and maybe this is the issue for some of us, that we make money, whether it's at, we work at Chipotle or we work at, at, at Chase Bank, whatever it is, we work wherever it is, and the conviction is we need to give our tithe. See, here, just a quick biblical theology of our use of money, 10% of what we have goes to God. That's our rent for living on God's earth. That's it. It's easy. The rest of the money, first part, goes to our necessities. The rest of what we have after our tithe and our necessities, that's what really reveals your heart. Because God, that's all God's too. It's not just a 10%. The 10% is a sign that all of it is his. Okay? Just like giving God our Sabbath is a sign, our Sunday is a sign that all of our days belong to him. Giving our 10% is a reminder to us that it's all God's. And so tithe necessities, the rest of our money is supposed to be used to reflect the generosity of God and to incarnate the love of God with the use of our finances. Because nothing speaks to our devotion to Christ like our usage of the money that God has entrusted to us. And they were not giving their tithe. Small compromise. 
compromise their tithes. So look at what he says in verse 9. I was greatly displeased, verse 8, and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. He doesn't say, all right, Tobiah, check it. You got a month. I'm going to give you your 30 days, and then you got to be out of here. He gets in there once he sees it, and he throws everything out. He fumigates the place, and then he says, get the tithe back in here. We need to get the house of God back in order ruthlessly dealing with. What is it that keeps you from giving your tithe? Is it your $500 that you're using on that whatever subscription service that you have? What is it that keeps you? Is it your addiction to getting the newest shoes or the newest handbag every month? It's real talk, guys. Come on. What keeps you from being financially steward to financially steward the gifts that God has given to you in a way that will honor the Lord? What is it? Let's be honest here. I hope we feel uncomfortable because I feel uncomfortable in my own heart, not because I'm saying it, because God is speaking to my heart also. There are things that I need to ruthlessly deal with. What is it in your lives? Some of us on our mission mission trip talk about slick deals. Maybe it's slick deals, buying things that you don't need simply because you have the joy of getting a good deal, things that we don't need. What is it that keeps you from being a faithful, honoring God with your finances? And let's ruthlessly deal with that. The second thing is in the area of their Sabbath and the usage of their time. How do you spend your time? The usage of your time reflects the things that we value. And God said, hey, here's six days. What they were doing is he says they were desecrating the Sabbath. Literally, it means they were profaning the Sabbath, taking that which is holy and making it profane. In other words, taking that which is set apart for God and using it for a common purpose. In other words, six days are common days. One day is the Sabbath, holy to the Lord God. But what they were doing as they were working on Sunday was they were making that Sabbath, I'm sorry, on the Sabbath day, they're making it just like every other day. Said there's nothing different about that day. And that Sabbath, that one day different, was supposed to make you a light unto the nations. And by virtue of the fact that you've compromised in that area, there's no difference between the nations and you. The way it was supposed to work was the nations look at Israel and they say, those guys only work six days, but they have everything that they need. We work seven days, but we're still struggling. How do you use your Sabbath? And for most of you, this will be your Sabbath, right? Or whatever day that you don't have to work, that's your Sabbath. A day for worship, and rest, and fellowship, in order that the one thing we might realize is that I'm not defined by the things that I do six days out of the week. You get that? We come here on Sunday, and we realize, and our Korean congregation does this, we are all brothers and sisters. This is who I really am as a child of God. I'm not defined by what the world says of me six days a week. In here, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dentist. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a professor. I'm not an engineer. I'm just me. This is who I am. I'm not defined by what I do. I'm defined by who I am in Christ. And so for somebody like me, for whom my Sabbath comes on a Monday, that's my day to worship and rest, the constant challenge and temptation is for me to withdraw from what I do during the rest of the days of the week so that I can rest in in my identity as a child of God, not as a minister of God. That's why I need this sabbatical as much as you need a Sabbath, as much as anybody does. Because a lot of times, one of our house church members said to me, you know what, maybe you should uh, turn off your cell phone on Monday, not get texts, not get emails, not get phone calls. A couple of them said that to me. But the hard thing about that for me is, it's like weird, I guess it's not that weird, but I want to be wanted. You know what I'm saying? I I want people to need me. I've got this problem, can you help me fix it? Can you pray for me about this? And the the tricky thing for me is I begin to define myself by what I can do for God and for people rather than by my identity in Jesus Christ. I need a Sabbath. I need times where I disengage from everything related to you and church and life and ministry so I can just love Jesus and let him love me. This is what our Sabbath is also. God says, this is what sets you apart from the world. This is my burnout prevention program for my people. Go ahead, work six days, but you take one day and you rest and you worship and you fellowship with people and you let your heart be renewed. 
verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 17 says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing? And he says in verse 19, when evening shadows fell in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. Meaning he didn't want people coming in and buying and selling stuff on the Sabbath. So he locked the doors. And then he said, there are people camping out in case there was a crack in the door. They could come in and start buying and selling stuff. He said to them, what the heck are you doing here, right? And he says that, that's basically what it says in the English version in verse 21. Why you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. He's not saying, I'll pray for you. He's saying, I'm going to beat you up, right? I'm going to get rid. He's dealing ruthlessly with the things that attack the work of God in the people of God. Ruthlessly deal with it. And then the last thing, they made a commitment. We're going to give our love life, our social life, our relational life to you. We're not going to marry outside of the house of God. We're only going to marry our fellow brothers and sisters who are not married, obviously, We're not going to marry people from those other religions because here's what happened when they did. It said, they had children, half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. So he's upset. Here's what he's upset about. You've got these parents and kids didn't, like people marrying age didn't just say, hey, I like you, let's get married. Hey, you look good, let's get married. Hey, you make lots of money, let's get married. Their parents would set them up and say, hey, here's your daughter, here's my son, let's get them married. Okay, that's cool. And then they go off and that's what they were doing and they were having children. But the people he's rebuking are those parents who said, look, here's your child. Why are you marrying them off to people who worship other gods? Why were they doing it? Here's why they were doing that. Because they said, oh, look at that. That person, I know they're a person of Ashdod religion, but you know what? Sweetie, he makes lots of money. He makes lots of money. You ain't got a job, so you marry him. You're going to be fine, and they're going to take care of us. You don't have to worry about us. Even though they did not worship the God of their forefathers. As a result, not just they got jacked up, but their children grew up. It says they couldn't speak the language of the people of God. They couldn't read the Bible. And in time, it waters down their faith. And so what he's getting mad at is not the people who got married. They didn't have a choice in it. He's saying, you who had a choice. It's you, you stupid, sinful parents who think that your child should marry somebody just because they're rich or wealthy or they're a doctor or they got a nice job, but they don't follow Jesus. It's like, what the bleep is wrong with you? That's what Nehemiah is saying. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. That's foolish. That's ruining an entire generation of people. It's better to wait long than to marry wrong. That's what he's saying. What he says to us also. So here's what he says in verse 25. I rebuke them. Again, and maybe he shouldn't have done this, but... I, I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Like, <laughs> you swear you ain't going to give your kids <laughs> to, to, to other people or else I'm going to beat you up. That's what he's doing. This is crazy. Like, he's going to grown men and he's pulling out their hair because they're doing this. Okay? This is not prescriptive. This is not a prescription. It's a description of what he's doing. It's not saying we should all do that to the people in our church, saying this is just, this is just what he did. Man, he might have not been the right thing to do, but what is he saying? He's saying we need to deal ruthlessly with whatever is causing compromise within our lives and with whatever is destroying the work of God in our lives. What is that in your life? Jesus said the same thing, right? If your right, right hand causes you to sin, He didn't say if your left hand. He said if your right hand, because your right hand is your dominant hand. You need this for everything. If your right hand, even if it's your right hand, if it causes you to sin, cut that junk off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Take it out. Deal ruthlessly with sin in order that you can be wholly committed. We sing, all to Jesus I surrender. Not part to Jesus I surrender. Some to Jesus I surrender. We don't say that. We're saying all to Jesus, and we need to deal ruthlessly with whatever is attacking the work of God in our lives. And so the book of Nehemiah ends not with a greater joy upon the joy of chapter 12, but it ends with a sense of, oh, my gosh, we've blown it. We've messed up. 
We can't do it. The book of Nehemiah begins with sin and ruins. It ends in sin and ruins. And all along, there's sin and ruins. There's moments of greatness, moments of rebuilding. But through it all, the message of Nehemiah is not about the great things that we can do, the great things that you or I can do. It's about what we can't do. We can't rebuild the people. We can't live completely devoted to God. We can't. And so the book of Nehemiah ends with a longing for someone who's able to do it better than Nehemiah could do it. Someone who is infinitely greater, who could finally, once and for all, deal with that which causes us to compromise, with that which destroys the work of God in our lives. In a word, it's sin. What is it that we're longing for at the end of Nehemiah? We're longing for Jesus. Jesus, we need you to save us from our own selves. We need you to save us from our inability to follow through on our convictions. We need you to save us from this broken life that wants to follow you, but it's so hard, it's so prone to wander and to leave the God I love. Jesus, we need you. We need you. And so here's how God dealt ruthlessly with sin. That God sent him who knew no sin into our world in order that he could become sin for us in order that through Jesus Christ, the perfect one, we might become the righteousness of God. And in knowing that this is who we are, living out of our identity, the indicative, this is who we are, righteous in Christ, grounds the imperative, therefore live righteously. Because we're righteous, because we're children, we can live this life of righteousness for the glory of God. Our hearts so prone to wander. And so it was that this young 22-year-old Robert Robinson wrote this great hymn. Almost prophetically, later in life, he did wander from the fold of God. And he wandered very, very far, even to the point where he didn't feel like he could ever come back to God. In his old age, running back with the ways of the world that he once lived for, before he gave his life to Christ, he was riding in a stagecoach pulled by a horse with a lady sitting next to him. And as they were driving, riding in that coach, they stopped in front of a church. And out of that church, a song was being sung. It was a song that he had written many years earlier. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. As he's listening to that song, tears might have fell from his eyes as the woman next to him said, how blessed is the man who wrote such words. And he responded back to her and said, woman, dear woman, I am that poor man who wrote these words many, many years ago. And if I had a thousand lives, I would give every single one of them to gain back the feeling that I had when I wrote that song. And she said to him, Sir, streams of mercy, never ceasing, are still flowing for you today. And they're flowing for you, and they're flowing for me today. For all the times where we failed, we committed to God, but we failed. God, I'm going to live in holiness, and we fail. God, I'm going to live in purity, and we fail. God, I'm going to be generous, and we fail. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Mercy tells us that even in our ruins, in our ashes, in our brokenness, he still loves, and he still forgives us. He not only loves us, but he likes us, even in our failure. And the only people who will ever be able to give our hearts to the Lord God are the ones who know deep in our hearts that even if we don't give our heart to God, that he'll still love us. That's mercy. That's grace. And it flows an endless stream for all who would jump into it and receive the grace and the love and the mercy of God. This is the message of Nehemiah. Let's embrace it. Let's live it. Let's drink deeply of his grace. Let's pray together. Let's take a moment as we think through the lessons that we've learned over these past 11 weeks. What has God been saying to you? What has he been speaking to your heart about? What is God doing in your life? 
through the book of Nehemiah. What is he doing in your life today? What are the convictions that God has placed in us? Again, the conviction is something that holds on to you, not something you hold on to, something that holds on to you, that God's been constantly bringing you back to. That's how God is working. And you, can better, be- you better believe that the enemy will be working to distract you from that place and those things and those commitments. Big problems start with small compromises, but if we can learn to deal ruthlessly with the things that keep us from the work of God, resting in the grace of God and the mercy of God, the never-ending streams of His love, day by day our hearts can change. They can. They are. They will. So let's pray a prayer of surrender, commitment to the Lord. God, here I am. Once again, I renew this commitment to you. I'm going to fail probably, but Lord, when I do and when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you, Jesus. You are my hope and stay. So let's pray to the Lord God. In light of what we've heard through the book of Nehemiah, let's practically surrender our hearts and make a commitment to walk with the Lord God. Can we do that? Let's pray for a minute or two. Just honestly, sincerely, yeah, filled with faith, God is here. His Spirit is here with us right now. Let's honestly and earnestly pray to the Lord on behalf of our own hearts, those next to us as for our church as well. Let's pray for that for a couple moments, and then I'll pray on our behalf. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your Sabbath, for every week we gather together and we are realigned according to the word of God. Our hearts are challenged and stirred, broken by our sin, but resurrected in the beauty of the gospel, the grace and mercy of God that captures us and leaves us longing for more of Jesus, not spinning our wheels to try and be better, but fixed upon Jesus saying, Lord, melt my heart that I might follow you. Thank you that this is what we get to do every week. So, Lord, help us to honor the Sabbath rightly. Help us to give of our tithes and offerings well in order that our hearts would not be ensnared by the love of things. And, Father, help us to be pure in our relationships, not only in our real relationships, but in the usage of uh, our time, our the way we we, uh, think about people, the way that we uh, treat others. We pray that you would give us holiness and devotion and whatever other ways that you're working in us, challenge us in order that we might be faithful to the faithful one. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray that you would grant us strength to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.